discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. Uh, I ask that you would please like the show, share the show, give thumbs up, stars, reviews, anything like that uh, is greatly appreciated and very helpful in getting this information out to others. And of course, you can always email me at the GBG podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, just look for Governed by God or the GBG podcast. And I'm happy to take your emails, your questions, and uh, discuss them on the show. And in fact, uh, this episode is kind of a special edition episode. Uh, I wasn't really planning on recording until next week, but I've had a few discussions with some of you and uh, about things such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, uh, and her passing and the empty uh, Supreme Court seat, as well as uh, Pastor Tim Keller and some of the things that he has said on Twitter recently that caused a bit of a, a bit of a firestorm, if you will, or maybe not a firestorm, but at least at least some people to ask some, uh, raise some eyebrows, ask some questions. So uh, those two are actually kind of related, and I wanted to talk about today um, how to wage war and when to wage war. So it's, uh, so that's kind of the theme of this episode this morning is how to fight and when to fight. And first, I want to take a look at uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and talk about how the Republicans are responding to this. Uh, this podcast is not really trying to focus on any particular political party. Uh, I'm not an advocate for any particular party, um, although I do have my levels of, of preferences there. But I really try to talk about government and civics and law just uh, from a in a way, 10,000-foot perspective, but sometimes you need to zoom in. Sometimes you have to look at uh, current events, and that's really what I want to do today. So, for those of you who don't know, Justice Ginsburg died a few days ago and left a vacant Supreme Court seat. Um, and the, the issue is, or I guess the, the drama is, that the Republicans and President Trump have said that they're going to fill that seat before the election. So the problem here that that what we're seeing though is the Democrats on the one side are arguing that it should not be done before the election, that it would be inappropriate to do that, it would not be honorable to do that, uh, especially given the fact that back in 2016 um, the Republicans basically said the same thing when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia when Scalia had died in February of 2016. So, so Scalia had died about nine months prior to the election, and the Republicans who had controlled the Senate basically refused to to nom uh, to confirm him. Uh, they said that it would be wrong to do that in an election year. And they made the argument, let the people decide. And by that, they mean let the people in the election, uh, the presidential election, uh, decide who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice in that seat. In this case today, what we have is the Republicans control the Senate still. But the difference is that President Trump is Republican and he's in the White House. We also have a difference in that there is one and a half months left 
before the election instead of nine. So back back then, back in 2016, Senator McConnell, Mitch McConnell, had said that the choice should be left to voters in an election year. Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, said something very similar. He said in 2016, quote, use my words against me. If there's a Republican president elected in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said it. Let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination, end quote. And in 2018, Lindsey Graham said this, quote, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election, end quote. So the problem here, as I see it, is a matter of waging war, how to wage war. And both these men, these are just two examples. There are other senators who have said similar things, but I highlight these two individuals because they're very prominent, um, with Mitch McConnell leading the Republicans in the Senate and Lindsey Graham is on the uh, Judiciary Committee. But both men recently have given excuses as to why they do not have to keep the promise that they said back in 2016 and 2018. Uh, for example, Mitch McConnell argues that since um, today, in this situation, both the Senate and the White House are Republican, it's not the exact same situation as it was in 2016, with the presidency being Democratic and the Senate being Republican. Also, Lindsey Graham has argued that since the Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh so badly and kind of changed some of the rules regarding uh, confirming circuit court judges, and that was during President Obama's term, since these things have happened, the Republicans do not have to keep their promise. So essentially, you have two different arguments for why Republicans don't have to keep their promise, uh, with McConnell saying, well, it's not the exact same situation. Uh, that's kind of taken the, the technicality portion uh, of the argument and, and applying it. And then Lindsey Graham is basically saying, well, since the Democrats were not honorable back then, and with Brett Kavanaugh, they don't deserve us to be honorable today. So, some thoughts that I had on this. Uh, I know I'm probably going to be going against a lot of uh, my conservative friends, and certainly I'm going to be going against what the Republicans uh, are are advocating for. Um, I, I yes, I am. Uh, I have been voting Republican. I am very conservative, but like I've said before, I I am not married to one party, or and I don't I don't always agree with even the Republican Party or other parties that I've voted for in the past. Um, and this is one reason why. This is an example why, and I want to explain my thought process on this. And I'm open for correction, criticism. Uh, and responses. This is, a, I think, a useful dialogue to have. So the first is an issue of honor. <clears throat> so legality versus chivalry. So just think about that for a second. Think about how the rules of, let's say, a game allow you to do certain things. But 
how you behave in that game also matters. I'm sure many of you have played games before. Maybe you've played war games, Axis and Allies, or Risk. Um, Games involving strategy, building up armies and attacking the other player. Maybe you've played some kind of empire-building game, Settlers of Catan. Any, Any game that you've played with friends or family where you're not all on the same team. There are rules that you have to follow. Things that uh, the, the rule book says you, you can and cannot do. But even, even within that domain, there are certain behaviors that would pretty much alienate uh, the rest of your teammates. So, to give an example, I've played many competitive games. Card games, board games, strategy games, uh, online or in person, and there's always rules to the game, unwritten rules to the game, regarding how you treat your neighbor. If you make a promise, even though it's not, you're not bound to it by the rules of the game, if you make a promise, I promise not to attack you this turn, or I promise I'm going to attack this territory, or I promise I'm not going where where you are, I promise to make this trade with you, all of these things, right? The rules of the game don't say that you have to do those things, but there are sportsmanship rules that would kind of govern your behavior. And if you were to, if you were to stab someone in the back, if you were to go back on your promises, if you were to uh, make a statement and then completely reverse course, you could find yourself quickly alienating the other person. And to give one example. In our house, when we play Settlers of Catan, um, when my kids play, I try to, I try to encourage them not to, not to just go down the path of vengeance. So what will happen is, just in an example of Settlers of Catan, uh, someone will roll a seven and they get to move the robber, right? Well, my one daughter will put the robber on her sister, okay? Not necessarily because her sister's winning, but it's because it's her sister right? I might be the one that's winning, or, or my wife might be winning, but it doesn't really matter to them. And then the other one will just get revenge and put it back on the other one. And then you, you end up getting in the situation where, uh, where basically they're just picking on each other. And maybe there'll be times where one sister just moves the robber three or four times on the same sister and keeps stealing from her when clearly there's another person who's winning who's doing well whether it's my wife or myself and I try to encourage them that really what's better for you might not be targeting your sister but it might be more advantageous for you to target the person who's winning okay so and and to stop the nonsense of vengeance and to think strategically building building bridges, maintaining bridges, and doing the honorable thing, what everyone expects you to do. Everyone expects you to target the person who's winning and to steal a card from the person with the most cards. Anyways, that's just an example of mercy versus legality, uh, chivalry versus legality, what you can do for the game, what you should do. So to be straight up with this whole situation regarding Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court seat, and the Republicans... I think that they are obligated to fulfill the promises that they made back in 2016-2018. I think that technical difference 
that the president is now Republican versus Democrat. I think that technicality is a loophole that's trying to um, allow the Republicans to get out of their obligation. Okay, and the and and as well uh, pointing at the other side and calling them dishonorable and and basically saying that their lack of honor allows for you to have a lack of honor. I think that is a again another lack of integrity. So the problem here, what we see, is a matter of trust and fear. What I'm seeing on the Republicans is that they are not trusting that the other side would show honor if they were in the same place. So if you kind of put yourself in the mindset of the Republicans, they have an opportunity to kind of crush their enemy. They have a position where they are in power and the enemy is at their mercy and they can basically do what they want. And to them, this is an opportunity that they will never want to pass up. They have a chance to make the court uh, lean, lean and be strong or stronger conservative. And at the same time, they are afraid that if, if they were to keep their promise of not filling the, the vacant seat, that the Democrats could win the, in the election, they could win the presidency and the Senate, and therefore the advantage would be lost by the Republicans. And there's also fear, of course, fear of the unknown, fear that, well, if we show mercy, if we show honor in this situation, well, if the reverse happens in the future, what if the what if the Democrats don't show honor? What if what if we show honor and it comes back to bite us and our opponents don't? They don't play by those rules. So, um, and then, then their opponents will have complete ruthlessness and, and, and show no mercy upon us. So what ends up happening is this sense of fear and this distrust of your opponent causes you to demonize them. Basically, um, because you already assume and you already think that they would show no mercy that therefore it is perfectly fine for you to do it kind of preemptively. Well, because I already know how they would behave, I already know what they're going to do in the future, therefore I'm just going to take advantage of what I have now and and never give them the chance to use it against me. So basically, um, out of fear of what your opponent would do to you in your position tomorrow, you are going to show no mercy today. And of course, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because your opponent, so when you show no mercy, your opponent who is going to become offended at your lack of integrity and your lack of honor is going to vow revenge upon you and is going to get back at you, right? So tomorrow, when your opponent has power, and you are in the vulnerable position, your opponent is going to show no mercy because you showed no mercy in the past. And his lack of mercy in the future is probably going to be more intense uh, than, than what you did because humans have a tendency to want to 
double down or want to one-up the other person, okay? So if you insult me, I key your car, okay? I key your car, you you vandalize my house. Uh, you vandalize my house, I assault you in the streets. You, uh, I assault you, you seek to kill me. You kill me and my family um, wages war against your family. So it's this constant one-upping of vengeance that results in a downward spiral out of control uh, in vengeance. It results in maximum carnage and unrestrained brutality. So that's kind of the situation that we're in, and the Republicans basically don't want to show any mercy. They don't want to maintain their integrity and their honor uh, and, and keep what they promised. Now, there's a couple things I want to mention regarding this. This is basically a war, but I want to be careful. It's not a physical war. What we have here is a war of ideas. Politics is a war of ideas and words. To make reference to uh, General von Clausewitz, he said that physical warfare is the continuation of politics by other means. Okay, politics... Uh, basically, when it breaks down, results in warfare. People go to war um, to continue their political discourse, but this time using guns and bullets. At the same point, then, politics is a war of words and ideas. And when the process breaks down and stops to function, the only thing left to do is to fight, which is what Clausewitz was getting at. So basically, if we cannot talk, all we can do is fight. If we cannot resort to words, we will resort to swords. Now, the Bible places restraints on physical warfare between enemies. And the passage that I want to look at today is Deuteronomy chapter 20. And I'll show you how this is relevant. Uh, There's some other passages I'll bring up as well. So in Deuteronomy 20, God gives Israel rules regarding how they're to wage war between two different groups. The first group is the nations that they're supposed to purge from the land of Israel, the seven nations of the Canaanites. And they were basically to show no mercy to them because of the fact that those nations were being judged for their iniquity, and God was using Israel to cleanse the land from their despicable practices. But What was Israel supposed to do in the future? Once they're settled in the land um, and they ever go to war with somebody, what's the plan? Well, here's what Deuteronomy says uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor to you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here. Okay, so that's kind of that distinguishing between cities that are far away, cities that are here. Now, 
here's he goes on to say in verse 19, here's what he says. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. What we see here is the principle being given that the amount of destruction that's being done is to be limited. Okay, so what is God telling Israel to do? Well, you're allowed to wage war. And when you do so, though, and you surround the city and assault it, there are certain things that you can and cannot do. You can build siege works against it using non-fruit-bearing trees. You may not cut down the fruit trees. Now, why is that? Well, God says you're not waging war against the planet. You're not at war with the trees. The trees are not humans that you should cut them down or destroy them. So God is restraining Israel and how they're to wage war. And what does that mean, though? Well, it means that there's some sense of mercy being shown because, for instance, if the siege fails, if Israel has to retreat for whatever reason and back away from the city, those trees would still be standing. The enemy would still be able to enjoy the fruit trees of his land. So the enemy gets to keep their trees and not starve to death. And what this means is that it's not scorched earth. The, the, enemy, the enemy is not being completely destroyed and put in such a position as that they would be starving when the war is over. And so this is what Israel is supposed to do. And what if, what if there aren't that many trees that are, fruit, that are, that are non-fruit trees to build siege weapons? Well, then you're, they're limited in how they can wage war. The fact is, is that this rule, this principle, would sometimes perhaps prevent Israel from being able to win if they were to perhaps destroy the fruit trees and starve their opponents into submission, then they would win. Yeah, maybe. But God said, don't do that. That's not how you win. Okay. And maybe if Israel um, has to back away or retreat, the enemy has enough food to survive and to rebuild its own army and then maybe launch a counterattack against Israel. What if that happens? Yeah, that could happen too. That could. And so the ten the temptation though is to completely annihilate and show no mercy and engage in scorched earth against your opponent um, to completely crush them so that there's no chance that they could ever win or come back against you. But that is not the mentality that God has commanded Israel to have in the Old Testament. And that principle remains today for those of us who are Christians and for how people should treat each other. Okay? So, God places restraints in war between enemies. And this is, this is physical warfare between enemies. So how much more is this applicable to politics? Because at the end of the day... Um, 
the Republicans and the Democrats are on the same team. They might be on opposite sides and differing opinions on things. And yes, some of them are pretty strong differing opinions, but they're technically on the same team. We're not in physical warfare. It's a war of ideas, a war of words. But if God says that there's certain ways to, to behave, there's a way to win that's honorable. Okay, how you win matters. Not just that you win, but how you win also matters um, there. How much more does that apply to, to politics? But going even further, we're talking here about keeping your promises, right? So in Proverbs 24, verses 28 and 29, here's what it says. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. So in this proverb, you have a situation where a neighbor has done something bad to another neighbor. And God is saying, don't get revenge. Don't do to them what he has done to you. Don't say that to yourself. That's, that's not right. And of course, we have another passage of, of, passage of scripture, uh, laws concerning the making of vows. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 through 22. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And also, uh, the book of Numbers contains pretty relevant passage here. Numbers chapter 30, in verse 2, here's what the Lord says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, here's another example of legality versus, versus chivalry. God is not saying that you have to make a vow. He says it very clearly. You don't have to make a vow. But if you do make a vow... You need to follow through with it, okay? And of course, Jesus will later on say, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't make promises. And that was because people were making promises that they had no intention of keeping. A promise is a serious matter. A vow is a serious matter. And if you're going to make one, you need to honor it. You don't have to make one. No one said you did. But if you do, you need to follow through. You need to... You need to follow through with what passed between your lips, the vow that you made, the words that you that you said, the promise you gave. And that if that's not applicable in this situation, then I honestly don't know what is. And trying to get out of it on a technicality or because your opponent was mean to you or mean to, you know, showed no honor before, it does not mean that the rules don't apply to you anymore that you can just discard them. That's just not right. So at the end of the day, I honestly believe that the Republicans need to keep their promises and maintain honor and integrity. They need to not nominate the Supreme Court justice till after the election is over. Okay, they need to trust in God. Okay, they need to show honor and integrity even if they don't know whether the Democrats would do the same thing or not. Because right now, the Democrats are promising their future act of vengeance already. They're promising to get rid of the filibuster. 
and to pack the Supreme Court when they have power. And one day they will. It's just a matter of time. So the fact is, we need to not burn the bridges. We need to um, not destroy our relationships in the name of winning, in the name of power. We need to not engage in cheap shots and low blows in order just to win for today. You might win the battle today, but you'll lose tomorrow, okay? And it'll just end up resulting in a downward spiral of vengeance uh, on both parties. So, you know, the Democrats might take advantage of us, uh, the Republicans in the future, but that's in God's hands, right? It is. Um, and just like in any other war, yes, you have to follow the rules, and, and maybe it bites you in the future. But, but to say, to suggest that the rules shouldn't be followed is really an atheistic mindset. Because what you're assuming is that there is no God that is watching the situation, and there is no God in charge. Therefore, we must play God and completely annihilate and destroy our enemies. It's also assuming that God does not honor faithfulness. Okay? You know, basically the idea is, well, there's no benefit in being honorable, having integrity, and showing mercy. There's no benefit. God doesn't honor that. Well, actually, he does. He clearly does. And maybe maybe you won't see it right away, but eventually you'll see it. There's a reason he gave Israel those rules regarding waging warfare. Um, because how they win matters, not just that they win. Anyways, that's kind of what I wanted to say about uh, the, uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg situation and, and kind of how to wage war. I want to kind of shift gears and take a look at when to wage war. When. Uh, and this has to do with the situation surrounding Tim Keller and some of the posts that he made. Now, I want to make it very clear that I respect Tim Keller greatly. I've read several of his books. I like his books. I like what he has to say. Um, I really look up to him and admire him, but I really was bothered by some of the things he said on Twitter and Facebook regarding ethics and morality in our culture. So I'm just going to read to you the post from September 16th, so last week, that he made. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to take a look at it. Here's what he says, quote, Christians and the freedom of conscience in politics. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity, may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded, and therefore we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and, and political involvement, the, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for blank, or every Christian must vote for blank, unless you find a biblical command to that effect. Some folks are missing the point of this thread. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but it doesn't tell me 
the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. Okay, end quote. So to begin my analysis there, he brings up poor immigration and abortion. Now, he affirms that God calls certain things evil, but he doesn't really but that God does not give us any guidance on how to fix it. I first want to say that I understand the fact that there is some wiggle room or flexibility on certain policies. Let me give one example. I don't actually believe him when it comes to the poor, but when it comes to immigration, he is correct that there is no specific guidance on how many immigrants to allow into the country every year. But there are still guidelines that I think need to be in place. So for, for instance, I don't think it's flexible, flexi there's flexibility in whether or not to have borders, okay? I think scripture is very clear that nations are allowed to exist, they're allowed to have borders, they're allowed to protect themselves, they're allowed to control who enters and who leaves. That is given, okay? Cities had walls, nations had borders, Israel asked permission to pass through the borders of Edom to enter into Canaan. Edom said no, and Israel had to go around. Israel honored that. Okay, so there are borders, and there are um, nations are allowed to exist. Now, there are certain things that are black and white. There are certain things that the Bible is very clear on. And yes, there are some on the, on the specific details. Perhaps there is some flexibility uh, in that that the Bible allows for. As far as addressing helping the poor, I'm going to have to disagree with him on this one. Um, it's not accurate to say that it's six in one, half dozen another, right? That, yeah, you know, maybe you want to have a large government and heavy taxes and state-run state run, uh, uh, redistribution of wealth versus low taxes and charity. No, the Bible is pretty clear that taking taxes beyond 10% is the definition of tyranny. Just read First Samuel chapter 8. Read, read Samuel's words to Israel regarding the king that they're going to set over them. He says, you know, when you set a king over, he's going to take 10% of everything. And when you cry out to the Lord, the Lord will not hear you. Okay, so tyranny is 10%. And why is that? Well, because only, only God is allowed to take 10%. For a government to take 10% is for them to basically say they are equal to God. They are on par with God. They are allowed to take as much as God does. Um, and it's just... It's just not right. It's not biblical. Okay, it's it's pretty clear. Scripture is pretty clear about, and also about handouts. Like, um, scripture, one of the laws in the Bible is uh, not to glean the corners of your field, but to allow the poor, the widows, to go through and pick up the food. And the whole idea was that the poor and the widows, they would have to go through the fields and do some of the work themselves. It wasn't, oh, the king will come in, take... 10% uh, of your corn and give it to the poor people. No, that wasn't part of the deal. That's not the laws in Israel. Um, there's there's a sense in which it's voluntary. Okay, the landowners voluntar voluntarily uh, open up their properties and uh, some work has to be done by the people that are collecting. Um, it's not just a, handing, them, handing them a basket of fruit. They're there to glean the fields. They're to walk in the fields in the heat of the day, in the, in the harvest time, and they're to pick the grapes 
you know, pick the, the, the fruit themselves. Okay, they're to harvest themselves for their own family. Anyways, I say all that to say that what, what Tim Keller is saying here, uh, either he is being a little dishonest about this, or he's, he's ignorant. And I don't, I don't want to assume either way on this one, but he is a very smart guy, first of all. And maybe he's just trying to appeal to people who would call themselves Christians and be staunch Democrats or who would advocate for socialism. I don't know. But to suggest, so here's my biggest beef, is that for him to suggest that God tells us the destination but not how to get there, I think that's an insult to God and his word. I mean, think about it for a second. Would God really leave us hanging like that? Like, God tells us, oh, this is what I want. This is what your goal should be. This is what your end result should look like. But I'm not going to tell you how to get there. I'm not going to tell you what to do to get there. I'm not going to tell you the path that you should take. Figure it out for yourself. Like, that that would be cruel. Okay? That's a cruel father. That's a, that's, that's cruel to basically tell your children, hey, um, you know, I want you to do this. I want, I want it to look like this when you're done, this project. And then, and then the kids ask, well, how do we do it? Oh, well, figure it out. Like, that's, that's harsh. And I don't think, I don't think God has done that with, with, with us, with his people. So, um, and just to give another thought experiment, like, let's take a look at that last section that, that Tim Keller said. He said, the Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. Go ahead and do a thought experiment with me. Exchange the word abortion for slavery. Imagine if he said, the Bible tells me that race-based chattel slavery is a sin and a great evil but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end race-based chattel slavery in this country, nor which policies are most effective. I say that because race-based chattel slavery is clearly a sin. Yes, the Bible allows for slavery, but that's not the kind of slavery that we were practicing in our country uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, okay? The Bible is very clear. Man-stealing, if you steal a person, you deserve the death penalty. If you sell that person, you deserve the death penalty. The person who buys the stolen person knowingly also deserves the death penalty in the book of Exodus. Okay, so the buyer and the seller for human trafficking deserves the death penalty. Furthermore, you may not murder your slave. If you murdered your slave, you owed your life also. If a slave escaped the owner, the slave was not to be returned to the owner. What was allowed their freedom. Okay, so we have all these rules that guides us, that guides the practice of slavery. But none of it is based on race or ethnicity or anything like that or stealing people or kidnapping people, human trafficking. No, not at all. Um, the kind of slavery that the Bible allowed for was... Um, basically paying off your debts, you or, or you're in desperate need. So for example, you're, you're a farmer and your crop fails, pestilence, locust, whatever the case may be, and your family is starving. 
and your only option is to go to a wealthy person and say, I will sell myself to you. I will work for you. Will you please just provide my family with food, shelter, and clothing? Yes. So there's a place for that. Or if you were a thief and you broke into someone's home, stole their stuff, uh, and you were not able to pay it back, you would be sold. You'd be sold into slavery until you paid off the debt that you owed. So anyways, that's that's biblical slavery. But to say that, that you know the murder of unborn children is a sin and a great evil, but God doesn't tell us what the proper way to go about it is. I think that's just not, it's just not honest. Um, the Bible is pretty clear that, that murder is deserving of the death penalty. Okay, and um, just like the Bible is very clear about stealing people and selling them into slavery, I think the Bible is pretty clear about handling murder and uh, especially the murder of the vulnerable. I mean, what's one of the abominations in the eyes of God? Hands that shed innocent blood. That's one of the main abominations to the Lord. So I, I think that I think that Tim Keller goes too far in trying to be nuanced. And this is an example of, of not knowing when to fight. So earlier, I looked at how we wage war, how we fight. But, but here, in this situation with Tim Keller, I think that he needs to fight, and he's not. I think he needs to know when to pick up the sword and to fight, when to, when to take a firm stand on something and say, yeah, it's evil and it's wrong and it should be illegal. We need to stand against it as a culture. God gives us guidance on how to do this. He's given us his law. Let's take the principles from his law and apply them. So anyways, um, ultimately, I think it's bad shepherding. Um, he's, he's being too nuanced. He's trying to leave room for nuance when there is no room. I mean, when the Bible is clear on something, we can't be gray, right? We can't be, and that's the, that was always a challenge, but you can't be gray when the, when the Bible is black and white. And you can't be black and white when the Bible is gray. But I don't think it's gray on the issue of abortion there. So at the end of the day, when Christian leaders are trying, when, when they're doing this, I think what they're trying to do is they try to say, well, Republicans and Democrats are basically the same. You know, they're both evil. Both parties are evil. It's just choosing the lesser of two evils. And I think that these days that is a, that's a disingenuous argument. Maybe back during the time of uh, Kennedy or during the time of Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, you could say that. I mean, Bill Clinton at least signed the Defense of Marriage Act under his presidency. But ever since then, the rift has grown so much. Um, and if you just look at the official political platforms for both parties, so I'm not saying that there aren't hypocrites on both sides. Oh, there are. There's wicked men. There's hypocrites on both sides. There's there's people that lack integrity. There's there's bad stuff on both sides. But if you just look at the official platforms of both parties, the doctrines, the dogmas, what you have to believe and advocate for to call yourself a Democrat or to call yourself a Republican, if you just look at that, it is a night and day difference. And let me just look at the last six of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, loving of one's neighbor. The Democratic platform stands against every single one of the last six of the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. Well, what are they advocating for today? 
what's a father, what's a mother, definition of words. There's no such thing as father. There's no such thing as mother anymore. Two parents in the home is not the ideal. You can't say it's the ideal. That is that is wicked to say that it's the ideal situation. You can have two mommies and two daddies, or you could have three. Why not? Okay, the next commandment, thou shalt not murder. The abortion issue, do I need to say more about that? The abortion issue, that is the holy sacrament of the Democratic Party. Uh, how dare you interrupt abortion? How about not committing adultery? Honoring marriage? Um, yeah, I mean, back in the day, the Republicans allowed no-fault divorce, and I have a problem with that. I really do. It began back then. But look at today. Democrats advocating same-sex marriage, transgenderism, okay? They're not, they're not honoring biblical marriage. They have no desire to do so, or at least the Republican Party on its platform does. Honoring property, do not steal, right? Let's just go with socialism and the redistribution of wealth and taking more than 10% taxes. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm against uh, big government on the Republican side. And if they're advocating for big uh, government and large taxes, that's also wrong. But the whole idea of socialism, redistribution of wealth, universal this, universal that, um, that is all stealing. Uh, when you go beyond 10%, you're, you're in tyranny. That's pure tyranny, and it's stealing. So it's not honoring of property. How about, how about do not bear false witness? Honoring truth. Which side is trying to redefine history, tear down the statues, redefine words? Denying that there is such a thing as two genders. Saying that there's new pronouns or that you got to change the pronouns. He is not he and she is not she. Is that, is that truth? Is that honoring truth? No, it's not. And how about do not covet the last of the Ten Commandments? Well, just see all that I said about socialism and absolute equality. Like the envy of equality. The, the looking at differences and the saying there should be no differences. There must be perfect equality in every way is envy. It's covetousness, really, is what it is. So the fact is, look... A person does not need to vote Republican. Christians don't have to vote Republican. But I think to advocate for the Democratic Party to, and to vote Democrat is to stand against all that God values regarding loving one's neighbor in the Ten Commandments. I don't see how you can reconcile the two. Maybe, maybe they could have been reconciled back in the, you know, before Clinton or, or before Obama. But, but these days, um, they're not the same. Okay, you can criticize both parties, but the parties are not the same. And I wouldn't even see it's a matter of lesser of two evils. Um, the, the, the gap between them is quite large. Um, because one hates God and his law utterly. And the other one does not. Um, and the only thing, perhaps, that the Democrats uh, could even say regarding God's law is that they care for the poor. But guess what? They don't. Their policies are not caring for the poor. Welfare and handouts and, and making people dependent upon the government is not biblical. That's actually a form of slavery. It's not what the Bible advocates for at all. Okay, socialism, redistribution of wealth, stealing, going beyond 10% of taxation is wrong. It's just, uh, there's no biblical case for it. So anyways, in conclusion, I just want to say that Tim Keller, I think, was being a bit too wishy-washy on this. His statement does not bring clarity but confusion. And honestly, we have to know when to fight, when to 
get a backbone and speak the truth. You can still be gentle and not have to compromise, okay? And so as Christians, at the end of the day, we have to know when to fight, but we also have to know how to fight because how we win matters. Anyways, I appreciate you tuning in. That's all I have for today. Um, please, uh, if you have any questions, follow-ups, uh, or you want to you wanna, you know, kind of counter what I have to say, you want to go back and forth, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to dialogue, have the conversation. Uh, if you have any kind of criticisms at all, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, uh, look up uh, the GBG podcast there, and you can uh, post messages on Facebook, email me, whatever the case may be. So let's, uh, let's not be ruled by tyrants. Let's be governed by God, as William Penn would say. With that, until next time, take care. Bye.